Our scripture this morning comes out of the Gospel of Matthew once again. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. If you would like to follow along in your own Bibles, you're invited to do that, or you can do that there on your digital devices in front of you. Uh, You are uh, always encouraged and welcome to follow along. Again, Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. Aaron Bullock will be reading our scripture for us this morning. Hey, First Church, today's passage comes from Matthew 7, 7 through 12. Keep asking, and it will be given to you. Keep searching, and you will find. Keep knocking, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who searches finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. What man among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. This is the law and the prophets. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty God, pour out your spirit upon this, your word. And make it be for us the word of life that we might be people of life. Now, God, hide me behind your cross that your message of love and grace might shine through for the redemption of the world. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Prayer is something we should do. It's our Christian duty to pray. If, if you want to be a good Christian, then you must pray. Oh, now there are lots of other rules for Christians. You should, you should pray. You should read your Bible. You should tell others about Jesus. There are lots of, of, of shoulds and also should nots. You should not smoke. You should not drink. You should not chew. You should not go with curls that do. Now, now don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong, these shoulds and should-nots were good for me growing up. This was the the foundation of my Christian walk and faith growing up. These these shoulds and should-nots were so very important for me in growing up, as they are for all young Christians. Christians. These these shoulds and should-nots were guardrails for my faith. They they kept me on on the straight and narrow road. But one of the consequences, one of the consequences of, of a faith of shoulds and should-nots is that our faith becomes just that, a, a list of shoulds and should-nots. Our faith becomes legalistic rather than relational. And I'll be honest, it has taken me decades to transform from a, from a legalistic approach to my faith to a relational approach to my faith and intimacy with my Lord. And I would suspect that I'm not the only one who struggles in this area. I suspect that there are some who are worshiping online with us or maybe even 
uh, here in our sanctuary with our staff and volunteers as well. There may, be, there may be some who are here because simply that's what we're supposed to do. It's what we're supposed to do. It may be that uh, being raised as a, uh, as a, uh, in, in the family of the pastor, it's just something you're supposed to do. It may be that, that we've got some folks here or here because that's what you're supposed to do. You're paid, you're paid, to, you're paid to, be, to be here, but there may be some. There may be some worshiping online with us who are worshiping because, well, that's what you're supposed to do. It's what good people do. It's what you should do. There may be some who wrote out a check to the church or, or gave online this morning because it's what a, what a Christian should do. You may have a legalistic understanding of our faith. A good sign of a legal, legalistic understanding of our faith is that, is that you live differently at home than you do at the church. Did you get that? A, a good sign that, that you may struggle with a legalistic understanding of faith is that, is that you live differently at home than you do at, than you do at church. Your actions uh, that you have around your children are, act, are different than the actions that you have around uh, uh, when, when the preacher is around or when a fellow church person is around. These are good signs of a legalistic view of faith as legalism always leads to hypocrisy. Did you get that? I want you to think about that as, as we are moving forward. Legalism always leads to hypocrisy. And believe me, believe me, I have been accused of hypocrisy more than you could ever imagine by my own children, by my closest friends, and even by my fiercest foes. Today we are continuing to examine Jesus' best sermon ever, his Sermon on the Mount. And in this Sermon on the Mount, we find that, that Jesus is, in some sense, turning things upside down. He's beginning to, he's beginning to help his followers clarify what, it, what it's like for them to live a life following him and him alone. Throughout this sermon, Jesus combats hypocrisy because he was combating legalism of the Jewish faith that had arisen after the return of the Jewish exiles almost 500 years before. You find time and again in Jesus' uh, in Jesus ministry that he was in opposition uh, to hypocrisy. He called out the religious leaders of his day because of their hypocrisy, but really what he was calling out was their legalism. Again, remember, legalism and hypocrisy always go hand in hand. And so when you have a, when you have a faith that's built upon the shoulds and the should-nots, we will find hypocrisy. Because, because we will say one thing we will, we will say and we will affirm all of the shoulds and we will, and we will flee from all of the should-nots in public, but they're in secret. There when we think none others are watching, then we do just the opposite. We, 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 we keep the shoulds at arm's length and we, we embrace the should-nots. The Jewish people loved prayer. The Jewish people loved prayer. They were a people 
passionate about prayer. They believed that God heard their prayers. It was as if there was a supreme God, the only one and true God who actually listened, who actually heard, who actually acted on their behalf. There was, there was no sacrificing children to appease this God. There was no self-flagellation to get your way with this God. No wrote rituals or ceremonies for this God to hear you. No, you could, you could stand before this God as Elijah did and call upon God to help, and the one and true God helped time and time and time again. You, you, may not, you may not remember that story about Elijah. You can, you can, find, that, you can find that story in, in 1 Kings chapter, chapter 18. So Elijah is a prophet among the, among the people, and, but the people had turned from the one true God, Yahweh, the Lord Almighty, and they had turned to, to worship another god, Baal, was this God's name. And there were, there were prophets of, of Baal all, all around, all around the, uh, the Jewish people. And so Elijah, Elijah made a call and said, surely I'm not the, I'm not the only prophet of the one true Lord. And sure enough, he was. He asked if there were any other prophets among the people, if there, were any, if there was anyone else who followed this one true God, and, and, and everyone, everyone remained silent, whereas there were over 450 prophets of Baal. And so Elijah came up with a plan. He said, uh, in fact, it really was more than a plan. It was a challenge. It was a challenge to these prophets of Baal. He said, here's what we'll do. We'll take, we'll take two bulls. I'll, oh, you, you take your pick of these two bulls. You slaughter one bull, and I will slaughter the other. And, and, and both of us will call upon our gods to come and, and consume our sacrifice with fire. And so the prophets of Baal, they, they, they took their pick of the, of, the, of the two bulls. They picked the, the best bull, and they slaughtered this bull and, and laid, his two ha- laid the two halves of the bull upon, upon the altar to Baal, as was their custom. And they began to carry about. They began to cry out. They began to, to march around this altar. They pleaded, and the, uh, the English Standard Version says that they raved on and on and on and on and even began to take their swords out and began to cut themselves so that, so that Baal would hear them. This went on for hours and hours and hours, but there instead was silence from Baal. Elijah was on the sidelines <laughs> making a little fun of them. Oh, maybe, maybe, he's, maybe, maybe he's just out relieving himself, he said. Maybe he's just musing. Maybe, maybe, he's, maybe he's just kind of on a journey there. Maybe, he's, maybe perhaps he's asleep. Maybe you need to awaken him, Elijah says, all the while knowing that Baal was a false god. And so after all of the wailing and the crying and the, and the marching and the raving on was over, Elijah took his bowl and 
put it upon the altar to the Lord. And he took 12 stones, large stones, and he laid them around the altar, symbolizing the 12 tribes of, of Israel. And he, and he had the servants come and put, put, put four jars of, uh, of water, poured them upon, upon this carcass. And he said, well, that's not enough water. Let's do it again. And so they did it again. And he said, that's not still not, not enough water. And so they did it again. Twelve jars of water were laying, were laying all, were, 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 on, were on that carcass. And then Elijah stood. And he simply said this. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, and I have done your will all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know you, that you, O Lord, are God, that you have turned their hearts back. And the Scripture says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. He didn't have to. He didn't have to cut himself. He didn't have to cry out. He didn't have to go through all of the ceremony. He just simply stood before the Lord and asked that the Lord act on his behalf, and the Lord acted on his behalf. The people of the, the, the Jewish people knew that prayer worked. There were people passionate about prayer. But again, lots had changed. Lots had changed among the Jewish people in those years since. Lots had changed in the 500 years since the people returned from exile. The idea that God blesses and hears only the most righteous the idea that God answers prayers with, with wealth and possessions, the idea that ritual and ceremony must accompany any prayer, the idea that God can only be really heard by the priests and the rabbis, the idea that the rich and the powerful were having their prayers answered while the poor and outcast were being ignored by God primarily because of their sin, those wrong ideas and those false beliefs had begun to creep in, had begun to creep into their faith. And here, and here in this great manifesto, this great sermon, Jesus begins to lay out the charter for Christian prayer. Two important things to note that Jesus says here. Now, some translations pick up on it. Most of them do not, however. Most translations simply say this, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. 
implying then that all you need to do is ask one time. All you need to do is just seek. That's it. All you need to do is knock. But in the original language, in the, in the original language, if this is a present imperative, meaning it's saying to keep asking, to keep seeking, to keep knocking. This is an active participation. This is an active participation. We must continue to, to keep asking, to, to keep seeking, to keep knocking. Followers of Jesus Christ are persistent in their prayer. When I was 13 years old, I began to pray for my future wife. Now, don't think that I was a wise 13-year-old by any means. I didn't come up with that idea on my own. No, it was a, a, youth, a youth leader that encouraged us to begin to pray for our future spouses. I was around 13 years old, and I began to I began to pray for my future spouse. I believed, I truly believed that God had someone out there for me. I truly believed that, that God had a, a, had, a, had a mate there for me somewhere that I hadn't, that I hadn't met yet who would, who would, well, who would walk alongside me, who would make me to be a, not only a better person, but who would make me a more faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And so at the age of 13, I began to pray for my future wife. I had no idea who that might be, but I began to pray diligently for her. I, little did I know, little did I know in a, in a, in, in a much larger town, uh, much larger than my town of 300, in a much larger town 30 miles away, my future wife was beginning to pray for her future husband as well. I'll tell you, of all of the prayers of my life, that may have been one of the most persistent prayers that I've ever, ever had. That I've ever, ever had. I prayed that prayer for the next seven or eight years consistently. Prayed that prayer for the next seven or eight years. And then when I met Amy, I began to realize that God was answering my prayer. We are called to be persistent in prayer because in pers being persistent in prayer, being persistent brings peace. Being persistent creates peace in our lives because in persistence we give God the opportunity to change our desires and our hearts to God's desires and God's hearts. You see, when we simply pray about something once, when we have a toss-up prayer, oh, Lord, send me the right wife, and then we go about our lives and we go about living our lives as we, as we want to. Oh, Lord, help me find a job, and then we never think about that prayer again. Oh, Lord, make sure that you heal so-and-so. Oh, Lord, please do this for me. Please do that for me. And we never come back to that prayer you see, God never has an opportunity to change us and to change our desires for His desire. But what I found, what I found at 14, 15, 16 years old was that God then began to change my desires and change, change what I thought I wanted into 
into, into what I, I, be, I began to understand and recognize what God wanted for my life. I don't think it was an accident. I don't think it was an accident while, uh, during this season of, of me praying that prayer that I began to be open to the work and the ministry and the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. I began to sense a, a, a call, a calling of God upon my life. I don't think that it was, a, it was an accident during this time of, of persistent prayer that God was working powerfully in my life. Oh, indeed, there have been other prayers in my life that I have been, that I have found persistent but that was such an important lesson for me to learn as a teenager, that we must be persistent in prayer. Jesus is telling his followers, if we are going to be his followers, we are called to keep asking, to keep seeking, to keep knocking, to keep knocking. The other thing, the other thing I think worth noting is that Jesus says that God always, always answers our prayers. God answers all of our prayers. He says it. Everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. It doesn't say, well, now, sometimes if you ask, sometimes maybe if you hold your tongue right, you'll receive. Maybe if you, if you follow enough rituals, if you keep seeking, maybe, maybe the Lord will reveal his hidden nature. Maybe, just, just maybe, if you're lucky, if you play your cards right, if you continue knocking, you, you may, maybe the door may be open to you. No, it doesn't. that's not what it says. Everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, the one who knocks, it will be open. So, so does that mean then? Does that mean then that everything that a child of God asks for, he gets? No. No, I don't. I, 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 think, I, think, the, I think the text implies something clearly different. Jesus said, says in verses 9 and 10 that a good father will, give, will not give his child a stone if he asks for, for bread, and he will not give a, fit or a serpent if he asks for a fish. And, and so the, the illustration prompts us to ask, what if the child then asks for a serpent? What if the child then does not ask for bread or for an egg or or, or, or for a fish, but instead, instead ask, what, what if the child asks for a serpent? What if the child asks for a rock? Or what if, what if the child asks for a snake? Does it say then that the, that the father will give them? No, the, 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 father, the father will give only what is good. Did you get that? Even if the child asks for a serpent, even if the child asks for a stone, even if the child asks for a scorpion, you know what the Lord gives? The Lord gives bread, an egg. The Lord gives what is good. This text, I believe, points us away from the conclusion that 
that ask and you receive means ask and you will receive the very thing you ask for no matter what you ask. That's not what the Scripture says at all. Some of us approach this Scripture believing that we can ask absolutely anything, anything. Lord, I want a new car. Lord, I want to be healed. Lord, I want, I want something good right now. What I found is that from our limited perspective, the things that we believe are good, the Lord may not see as good. We think that we're asking for bread, but really what we're asking for is a stone, and the Lord just simply wants to give us bread. God gives only good gifts. That's what the Lord gives. The Lord gives only good gifts gifts. And of course, this is indeed a test of our faith, because if we thought something different were better, well, then we would ask for it in the first place. But, but we are not God, and we are not infinitely strong or infinitely righteous or infinitely good or infinitely wise or infinitely loving. It is a great mercy to us and to the world that we do not get all that we ask. So God always, always answers our prayers, but in His way and His way will always be the way of perfect wisdom and perfect love. He always gives bread and fish and eggs, even when we ask for stones and snakes and scorpions. So this prayer this model of prayer, this, this manifesto of prayer that Jesus has offered us is not about legalism. It doesn't say his followers should pray. He just simply invites his followers to keep asking, to keep seeking, to keep knocking. This is about intimacy with the Father. This is about calling upon Him for our needs and our desires, asking that our needs be met according to His will, that our desires be changed to His desires. This is about a relationship. It's not about shoulds and should nots. It's not about, it's not about Christians should pray. It's not what it's about at all. He's inviting us all to come and to be seeking, to come and be asking, come and be knocking. And the Lord will always be there to give you good gifts, always and forever. Would you bow with me? Oh, Lord, there are some of us who feel like we're asking for bread and fish and eggs. We feel like we're, we're asking for the, for the right things. Lord, reveal to us when instead we are we're asking really for a stone and for a snake and for a scorpion. 
Lord, change our hearts and our desires to your heart and your desire. Help us to find those ways and to experience those ways in which you are blessing us, even during those times when it feels like you are not answering us. Help us to see your grace-filled answers time and again. Lord, help us. Help us to be persistent in prayer.